This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Monthly slash bi-weekly visit with the man with the best voice in radio. And I'm very proud of this hour because I think this might be the only hour of the 20 hours a week of programming that we do on this program where people actually write to me either via email or via SMS or through social media. They say, you know, I don't necessarily always catch your show, but this particular hour is the one hour that I always try to never miss. Now, if you're just tuning in, if your radio is still on because the program that you were listening to was so compelling, you couldn't bring yourself to turn it off, and you're wondering, what exactly is this hour? Well, you, my friend, are in luck. Because you are about to enter the infinite side of midnight where you will be guided on an audio tour through the heavens. We're going to talk about what's happening in the night sky, what's happening in space, what's happening on other planets, what's happening with respect to satellites, and anything else you can imagine that involves looking up. Your tour guide on that curated journey through the celestial bodies is none other than steve cates who we call dr sky a veteran radio and tv broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space also happens to do a terrific podcast the dr sky experience at red apple podcast network.com steve i can't believe it's been two weeks already it's great to talk to you well good to be with you frank and all the listeners of your great show and this great radio station And I just hope and maybe pray, too, that we can take the edge off the world and all the crazy things that are happening and delve into these great realms to kind of give us a little bit what? A little bit more peace and uh, maybe some harmony. And how. Absolutely. And by the way, for people that are paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East, which I imagine a lot of people are, we're keeping an eye on everything that's uh, going on there. Uh, President Biden set to arrive in Israel within the next couple of hours. We'll keep you posted on that. Also, uh, we're going to go live to Saudi Arabia in about two hours for an update on what all this means for U.S.-Saudi relations and Israeli-Saudi relations. Steve, let me begin with this. On Saturday, I was sure. quite disappointed because the rain had canceled a softball tournament that I was poised to play in. But I was even more oh. disappointed because this eclipse that we were that we'd been spending a lot of time talking about, I couldn't see it at all. I'm not sure if that's because of my geographic location or because of what the weather was like in uh, in New York. Did anyone get a good view of this eclipse on Saturday? Well, Frank, yes, and the answer would be absolutely, and I'm going to just describe some of the events that I was involved in, but more important than that, a big swath of the United States from the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, all the way down to Texas and the Gulf of Mexico, we've gotten reports from all over. But obviously, when anybody's in the weather systems, a few people did tell us that they were in clouds, sorry to hear that. 
So while I was privileged and honored to be doing this week, I was invited to the International Balloon Festival, Albuquerque's International Balloon Fiesta. And Frank, I've never been to this, but for people who don't know this, it's probably one of the most amazing displays of hot air balloons and other things that goes on for more than a week. Now, I was asked to be on stage with the chief meteorologist from the ABC affiliate there in, in Albuquerque to narrate this whole thing. But, Frank, it was so surreal as I'm looking out into this audience. We had the Army band up there playing, lots of other guests. But I'm serious. There were over 60,000 people just wow. in that one area. 60,000. 60,000. No exaggeration. And they say that during the entire week, the attendance of this was over 800,000 people. So a mass, you know, journey of people. But what the most important part of this was, we were right in that path. We predicted, you know, that this is a place to be. They mm -hmm. knew this. So in addition to the festival, we got to see it, and we saw the Ring of Fire. But sad to say, like yourself telling us, that you didn't get to see it. But there is a great consolation. So let's all remember this date, and we'll talk about it, hopefully, with your permission, all the way up to the date and more. Maybe we'll even do something with this radio station that you would like to do to report on this. April 8th, 2024 is the next major eclipse. Now, the last one we had was annular. What that means is the moon was too small to cover the whole sun, so you had the ring of fire. But this one, Frank, is so impressive that it starts off in the area off the coast of Mexico, moves through ten, you know, Texas Hill Country in downtown Dallas. But for this particular listening area, let's say a lot of folks in the Northeast, how about this? You'll get downtown Cleveland, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, downtown Buffalo, New York, all the way Syracuse, Watertown, all the way up into the area of Vermont and New Hampshire and the state of Maine and up into the Maritimes. Now, this one will be the one not to miss, but let's hope the weather forecasts are a lot better. Yeah, and how? Well, that's going to be something, April of 2024, and uh, yes. I've got my special Eclipse glasses that I've ordered online. Oh. But uh, obviously, that's a long way to go from now till April 2024. But if people want to uh, get uh, any specific type of Eclipse glasses, anything uh, specific that you could recommend, Steve? Well, absolutely. And it's part of our own business. I mean, not to be selfless promotion here, but the truth of the matter is we actually have what we consider to be the really good ISO certified. So just simply go to this, just TSE, the letter TSE17.com. You'll see the display there of what you can get. And there, you know, we brought 20,000 pairs with us, and that was wow. our team there. I don't know how well they did, but uh, those gentlemen and one of the gentlemen from Germany came over because they also have a line of these solar telescopes that you can create an eclipse every day and observe the sun in the most amazing way to see those big so-called flames or plasma. You're kidding. Uh, I, I, oh, are, yeah. how, are, those, uh, are those pricey? Some of them are. I mean, some of them are upwards of about $8,000 for people that want to spend the money. But I use one all the time, a little less expensive one. My budget didn't call for the big maximum one. So you can probably get one for maybe 800 to to $1,000. And that's the common price of even a decent little telescope. But what we were showing outside the Balloon Museum, just amazing. We had a special night for the children for the STEAM and STEM education. And what we were doing is not only showing them solar glasses, because we want to see the children see, them, see the sun safely, we were showing them the sun in that telescope, and you can actually see around the edges these massive what they call prominences. And some of them, Frank, are like amazing. The sun would be like this tiny speck, hmm. and they would be maybe 20 times the height of the Earth, 
And luckily, we're not 93 million miles too close. <laughs> yeah, and and how? Oh, by the way, I uh, I did not give the phone number. If people have questions at any point throughout the hour, you can give us a call, and Steve will answer your question. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Speaking of the sun, the sun has a magnetic field. I understand it is up to something a little unusual in the coming days, weeks, months. Well, here's what happens. The sun, not to alarm people, the sun changes its magnetic field and flips. And we've heard many, many stories about when the Earth does that, maybe every 330,000 years, that that could be very damaging to the way we run our electronics and our computers. That's another story. But every 11 years, the sun goes through these cycles. Right now, cycle 25. Now, what we're starting to see, this gets a little technical, and I'll make it as simple as I can. We're starting to see some changes toward the poles of the sun when you observe, like in one of those solar telescopes. You see these dark things that look like squiggles at the bottom. They're massive clouds of material that are less heat intense than the surface of the sun. So why is that important? Because the sun, Frank, is this giant dynamo. So inside, all this material is spinning, millions of degrees of temperature. So the sun does this transformation of going plus, minus, and minus, plus. And that's going to take place. At least that's what the astrophysicists are saying and those that observe the sun all the time. When and why is it happening? The when is it could happen by the end of the year, which means that we may be reaching the peak of this solar cycle, and that would herald in a new solar cycle. But here comes the interesting fact. Sometimes the sun can actually lose a pole polarity and nothing happens bad. Or sometimes you can have both the north and south poles of the sun, the same polarity for a time. So the sun, obviously the life giver, you know, the heat giver and light giver of, the, of our solar system. We're learning so much about the sun, but simply this, Frank, we really don't know that much about the sun. Because look at what it can do in this digital age, as we talk about all the time. The nefarious things when solar flares come, solar flares, of course, the speed of light, eight minutes away, a solar flare comes from the sun to the earth. But the problematic thing are those CMEs, those giant big bubbles of gas and proton storms that come out of the sun. And that is something that we're being, you know, really have to keep an eye on. There's not much we can do about it. But the point of the matter is looking at this digital world, we know what happened in the past. And something happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. People talk about that 1859 event, the Carrington event. Well, scientists are telling us now through checking tree rings and different isotopes and radioactive decay and different rocks and layers of the earth, that 14,000 years ago, there was an event maybe a thousand times more powerful than Carrington, which was off the charts some 14,000 years ago. So the sun belches and does what it does. And yes, it really does exactly what it wants. But the polarity of the sun may change, hopefully by the, well, maybe by the end of the year. And maybe we've reached the peak of this cycle, so stay tuned. Uh, that is uh, going to be interesting. We're going to get to calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. One story I found very interesting since the last time we spoke is, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about space junk. There's a lot of junk floating all around space, and there are warnings that it it could become potentially hazardous, colliding into uh, all sorts of other things, other satellites, uh, spacecraft, yes. other things. And the FCC has actually now issued its first fine for space junk. What happened here? Who did they fine and why? 
Well, it's interesting. I was always thinking the FAA would be involved in this, but since it's a communication satellite called the Echo Star 7, what they issued, this is something under what they call the anti-space debris rule. Now, that's interesting. Government rules saying that obviously a spacecraft that maybe had gotten too low in orbit, because the sun, of course, when we reach these big coronal mass ejections, it changes the dynamics of where these satellites are causing more friction. So they asked the satellite to be moved to a higher orbit. So what happened, they put it, that is the people from, you know, DISH, they put it at an orbit of about 75 miles up above the Earth. And what they really needed to do was go up to 186 miles. But you really can't blame them because when these spacecraft run out of propellant, there's simply no way to move them unless you had some kind of a space tug out there. So they issue a $150,000 fine to DISH for having this particular object be in a path so it's like on the highway. Let's say your car broke down and you didn't want to pick it up or, or get it off the freeway. And let's say it broke down and couldn't be moved in the access lane. Well, obviously, that could be hazardous to drivers or emergency vehicles. But looking at space, the bottom line here is right now, there are so many pieces up there that are obviously floating around the Earth. We have more than 25,000 pieces of space debris that are larger than four inches in diameter. But here we go is the really sad part about this. A particle, Frank, the size of a small chip of paint, which is traveling at 17,000 miles an hour, can still cause you know, fatal effects on spacewalkers if a little piece like that were to hit your uh, spacesuit. So the low Earth orbit that we have, here comes a statistic. In the 1960s, it's alleged that we had 1,000 objects in space. When Sputnik was up there, obviously it was an open field up there. It was awesome. Astronomers could see the dark of the night sky, take their pictures. But now, as we move into the 2020s, allegedly 31,000 objects are up there. But here comes the problematic thing. Almost 700,000 small objects that have some decent size, meaning not just the size of a chip of paint, but even up to, say, a couple of centimeters in diameter. And now we have, again, kudos to SpaceX for putting up all these spacecraft to do better communication. But some have said that in the future, if we move toward more of these spacecraft in low Earth orbit, and also Bezos is looking to do his Kuiper project, which is kind of a, you know, I don't know all the technical details, but kind of the same thing. Multiple spacecraft, maybe hundreds of thousands of these. They're saying that we could have one human death on Earth every couple of years from space debris that doesn't incinerate when it comes down from the low Earth orbit. That's pretty spooky stuff, don't you think? I, I do indeed. All right, a lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky is my guest for the hour. If you have questions about anything that involves looking up, now's the time to ask them. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Max in Manhattan. Hello, Max. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, you, were, Dr. Sky, you were mentioning about the sun going through its 11-year cycle. Uh, what do we, when it begins to change certain uh, climate patterns here on Earth, can we assume that this is what uh, climate change is attributed to, or do we go around? Do we go about just blaming uh, carbon? Max, it's a great question. It's a great comment. And yes, I can tell you this. Not necessarily is this maybe attributable to the change of the solar cycle with this eleven or twelve year cycle. Remember, these solar cycles are even deeper than we think. In other words, we've just talked about 11 or 12-year cycle. The sun, according to many astronomers and astrophysicists, which I speak to, they're talking about cycles that may be three and 400 years at length, which is the real dynamic that I think we should go on. 
But the simple answer I can give you, since I'm not a climatologist, is in the area of study of astronomy is specifics, is that we obviously know that the sun, all weather comes from the sun. So I would say this, not, a, not that I'm a climate denier, and certainly I always say this, we should have an open mind on all the subject. Unfortunately, Max, don't you think? So many people just want to jump to a conclusion. But the bottom line, quick answer to this is, I don't really know that the 11-year solar cycle really has any change on the climate. It's probably a much larger one. But remember, volcanoes are still one of the highest producers in the atmosphere of the so-called nasty thing that people talk about called carbon dioxide. Interesting. Can I add something to that, please? Sure. Please do. Okay. Um, some years back, Richard Hoagland came out and he said that NASA had, had reported that there is climate change happening on every planet in our universe. Uh, that would imply well, that yes. since uh, mm-hmm. if we look at Mars, we just have two rovers there. We don't have a whole uh, uh, economy of cars driving around on, on the planet. So mm-hmm. that would also imply that it's somewhere within the universe or our universe or the solar system that is changing yes the climate on all the planets, including ours. So why are we looking at all this, uh, this hogwash about solar uh, climate change that Bill Gates is pushing? Well, you know, you're right. I mean, I would kind of say this way. I always said this, and I think Frank would agree. I don't know your opinion on this, Max, but I think the art, the art of debate has become so demonized. In other words, years ago when I was in school, we had, and maybe you did too, you had a subject in the school, whether it was high school or whatever, and you had both sides present the information they want. They didn't throw bricks at each other. They didn't <laughs> scream at each other or burn down their, you know, their, their podiums. But the point is, Richard Holdman's on to something, too. Let's talk very quickly, Max, about this. Look at Venus. Why does Venus have the most ridiculous, and I say obstreperous, that's a fancy word, or the nastiest, the simplest word, of climate change? Somehow it lost its magnetic field over the course of time. So you have a surface temperature of over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. You have pressures on the surface as if you and I were swimming under the ocean, 3,000 feet. Incredible. Then you look at Mars. Look at that. Something happened on Mars. Maybe an asteroid body hit it. There's evidence of a giant depression called Velos. But there's changes in the entire solar system. Who knows? Maybe all this was brought about by massive solar storms. We don't simply know. But, Max, you bring up, I think, if, hey, Frank, if we were given a prize for the best questions, I think this would come up as maybe number one so far. Well, well it's it still early. It's one. still early, though, yeah. Steve. We have a lot of people that are good trying to one-up uh, Max. Well, uh, Max, uh, very good. I like that. And, uh, Dr. Sky is my guest for the hour. It's the infinite side of midnight. If you have questions, give us a call, 800-848-9222. In a moment, an ancient asteroid has ingredients for life. NASA scientists revealed they found a treasure tre- a treasure chest of carbon, water, all sorts of other materials in an asteroid that's four and a half billion years old. What does it all mean? We'll find out from Dr. Sky straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. A thousand stars in the sky, like 
singing about the stars in the sky. We're talking about the stars in the sky with Dr. Sky, although uh, he is known in some circles as Steve Cates. He is a terrific podcaster who covers everything that's happening in the celestial bodies and some things that have nothing to do with the celestial bodies and a lot of other things. You can check it all out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And you can listen to the Dr. Sky experience. Steve, I alluded to this um, rather fascinating discovery on the part of NASA. Tell me about this ancient asteroid that NASA has purloined a portion of. What did they find and what's the significance of this discovery? Well, asteroid Bennu, Frank, was selected a number of years ago as a primary target. And the reason that they did this, it's kind of a rubble pile, at least on the surface. Now, can you imagine if you went to this object, fairly large in the sky as far as an asteroid in space? So they send this OSIRIS-REx spacecraft out there, and that's still the magic of the whole thing. Think about how difficult it would be if we, let's say, had a rifle on a shooting range, and we were trying to get a bullseye, let's say, maybe 1,000 yards, 2,000 yards, well beyond what our eyesight is really good for. So they take this spacecraft. And it's so amazing how they can even calculate orbits to get an object like that small, maybe an object smaller than an SUV, to an object like that. So they get there. They have this little door, so to speak, to keep it very simple. It goes over the surface of this almost minuscule gravity object. So in other words, if you and I were standing on Benno and we jumped high enough with all our strength, we'd probably go right off and out into space. So it scoops up material. The little door that was like a, you know, like a sweeping pan that you'd clean up, you know, the floor, the dust and stuff. The little door got stuck. So finally it closed. So it brings back these objects. The capsule takes a year and a half or so to get here. It lands in the Utah desert. They bring it down to the Johnson Space Center, and they slowly open it up. So they finally got more than they asked for. There's an internal capsule inside the capsule that they really, I don't know if they've opened that up yet. But just finding this peripheral bit of material around it, they're finding out that it has these little rocks and stones or whatever are rich in carbon. How about that? One of the building blocks of life. And they're also finding water molecules trapped in minerals inside there. So it can only be even more exciting to find out what they dig into inside the internal part of that capsule. Because so many people believe, and I'm one that also would believe this, that in the universe, if you just look at biologic life and how it existed, okay, it's more than likely that life was seeded, the concept we talked about maybe once or twice on your program called panspermia, mm. in which organic material has drifted on comets, asteroids, meteors. So what we're trying to find out is, what is the constitution of that you know, particular asteroid and similar ones like it? So it goes to answer, hopefully, questions about how this whole shebang took place, you know, billions of years ago. And if they're populating the Earth, let's say, over billions of years, why not out in the other parts of the solar system where life, primitive or more advanced, could exist? It's just fascinating. So the significance of this, both the age of the asteroid sample and mm-hmm. the the elements that were found within this, for, for mm-hmm. laymen is that there, it could mean that there are conditions similar to Earth elsewhere. Is that the significance or is there more to it yeah. than that? Well, that's right. You're right about that. But who knows? Maybe there's more things about life that we don't understand. But when I said before carbon, think about it. In the universe, that's one of the constituents that we have for life as we know it today, a carbon-based life form. 
and then look at the water molecules that are trapped in some of these minerals. That's even more incredible because in many cases, you would imagine out there in the deep dark of space, where did this water come from? How did it even exist, even if it's permeated and stuck inside some of these minerals? But the, what they're doing to actually analyze this, they're using these powerful things called electron microscopes. So when we're all in school and we had the typical little microscope on the lab desk and we tried to look at a frog's leg or an insect, these are, these are microscopes that go the other way instead of super magnifying like the James Webb, they go down into the small part of the world. So it's going to be exciting what they find. And there's so many more things about asteroids. And I know we'll hopefully get to the one about Psyche mm. because that's a mission of, on itself that's just also fascinating. But it deals, of course, with these objects. By the way, the question should be this. Where did the asteroids come from that lie between Mars and Jupiter? That's another fascinating story that would take, what, hundreds of hours to explain if we even knew the real answer. Uh, yeah, it, it, fascinating question indeed. A lot of people eager to chat with you. If you want to jump on board, you can do so at 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joel in Manhattan. Hi, Joel. Hi, I Frank. I, uh, Dr. Sky. Question morning, for you. I saw, saw a sci-fi film ages ago. And it was about a dual Earth that danced in the same orbit exactly 180 degrees opposite the sun, so it was always blocking it. So, I mean, what is the possibility of a situation like that where we're not, there's maybe a thriving community over there, but we can't hear anything because the electromagnetic magnetic energy mm-hmm. of the sun's all blocking it out, and that's that, whatever. Well, very good question, Joel. But the telescopes that we have today, the simple answer is we don't have an identified object like that. Not to say I want to believe just like you're talking about, about what if that were possible? Yes, anything is possible like that as we're talking about how life may exist in this whole solar system and the universe. But all the telescopes and people that we talk to and the people that, you know, the observatories that I've been to, there was always this question that there's some kind of a star that's lurking out there way out beyond, let's say, our planetary system, way out beyond then dwarf Pluto, way out into this cloud of material where the comets come from, and that every so many hundreds of thousands, if not maybe a million years, this star comes in close to us and changes the dynamics of the solar system, or for that matter, may even have its own planetary system. But simply, Joel, nothing that we know of like that, that would be quite interesting and a major Nobel Prize would be awarded to somebody, I'm sure, if they did discover it. So we'll keep our minds open. Thanks, Joel. Hey, uh, Steve, you mentioned Psyche, this uh, NASA asteroid mission. Give us an update on that and give us a little bit of background for people that have not heard any discussion of Psyche before. Well, the Psyche mission that NASA has, you know, they had a delay because they had some issues with the weather and such. October the 13th, just a few days ago, it's headed out to this asteroid. So why this particular asteroid? Think about this, 137 mile in diameter, what might be, Frank, the core of an, ex, you know, of, of an ancient planet. Now, when you get into asteroids, there are different classifications. So this is what they call an M-type asteroid. What the heck is that? It means it's the heaviest of asteroids, more metallic than that rubble pile like I talked about with maybe Bennu. So this particular mission is going to get there, we hope, in 2029, And it will continue to orbit around this object because what's so unusual about it, it could be, and I don't want to use the word too frequently here, an overuse called a gold mine, but it could be some prospectors of the future, space prospectors 
where the thing is worth quadrillions of dollars if you could pull it close to us or if it would come close to us. Be careful that you don't want it to hit us. But the point of the matter is this spacecraft is so incredible. It's now using a different kind of propulsion system. So kudos to the people at NASA and the scientists. It uses something called solar electric propulsion. Now, this sounds like science fiction. Right. It's called ion propulsion. Now, people can look this up. You pump xenon gas, one of the elements, number 54, into this chamber, like you would fill up, let's say, your car with fuel or cars that run on what? On uh, you know, gas or even hydrogen. But it really has something interesting. The, most, the best way I can describe it, and it's really inaccurate, it's like if you turn on a flame on, an, on, a, on, a, on a stove or an oven and it's gas, you see this blue flame from the gas that's burning. Well, this, it's a silent kind of propulsion that's not using chemical propulsion. So not only are they sending the spacecraft out there to a specific asteroid, but they're doing it with a propulsion system that's really the coolest thing of all. And a sidebar on that is many, many people have been wondering how NASA gets away with not really identifying or coming clean on something called the X-37B. What the heck is that spacecraft? It's a little miniature shuttle that comes out and goes up into space, and it stayed up there for seven or 800 days, also thought to be testing out this ion propulsion and some other things like that. But when we find out what's going to happen around that particular asteroid, that's amazing. You know, if you've gone to planetariums like in New York, the famous, say, Hayden Planetarium, or planetariums wherever you go and they have a giant meteorite inside the museum, and you imagine how heavy that thing is. So this could be the core of an ancient planet, but the big question becomes this. How did just the core exist? The planet maybe blew up. Is that something in the evolution of planets that's normal? Or is this object Psyche, the asteroid, actually it's known as 16 Psyche, the 16th official asteroid that was ever discovered. So I'm really excited about that. I'm sure a lot of people are, but this one we're not going to dig into because you'd probably need big drill bits. And they're not ready for that. They're just going to analyze it, study it, and let's also pray and hope that an asteroid like Psyche is not on a direct, you know, set course to the Earth. That might be problematic because of its size and density, not a rubble pile. Yeah, I'll say 800-848-9222. Thomas, listening on WCBM in Baltimore. You're on with Dr. Sky. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning, Thomas. How are you today? Yeah, uh, I heard about the, uh, talk about the Big Bang Theory, but what uh, started the uh, universe. Do you think there's an end to the universe? Well, I don't really think so, but the best way I can answer this is that Big Bang, which I like to call the big expansion because we weren't around to see this Big Bang thing. You know, the Earth wasn't even around. Right now, if you looked at this whole bubble, let's say you put your finger on the wall and you know had a marker, and that was the point where the so-called bang exploded. How far it's going out is about 94 billion light years on either all the way out on the outside. So the bubble is that big. But I don't think it really ends because I think it's moving into something even deeper and more, more, how do I say this, more bizarre. We don't understand it, but I think it's literally open space. And it also gets into the stuff we call quantum physics, where now people are talking about that this dimensional system that we have on the Earth is probably 10 or 12 different dimensions. So simply, Thomas, great question. I just think the universe will continue to go on and on and on. I don't think there's a boundary. There's an edge. I think it's going to keep going on. Steve, 
Let me ask you what may sound to some people like an obvious question, but apparently the answer is anything but obvious. How many oceans are there? Well, it's interesting. We had four up until just recently. And if people look at basic geography, you know, we were in school, and a lot of times we don't even talk about this stuff anymore. But if you take a look at the oceans on the Earth right now, we're obviously looking at a fifth ocean. So what are we talking about here? If we look at the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Arctic Ocean, we've added another one, which is called the Southern Ocean. Now, why even bother to do that? And where is it, first of all? So if you look around Antarctica, some of the most desolate places on the Earth, and by the way, just around that Southern Ocean is what they call the uh, satellite space graveyard. I don't know if a lot of people know that. So when they deorbited Mir and a lot of these other big space objects in space, you know, the Mir space station that the Russians have is a pretty big thing, not as big as the uh, International Space Station. But that whole area kind of surrounds Antarctica. So, well, people have decided that is the geography, you know, folks that make maps and the international groups that, of course, get the naming rights to this. There's a Southern Ocean, and it's one of the most, and seriously, people look at the Indian Ocean as one of the most you know, desolate locations. Like if you look along Perth, Australia, and follow the Indian Ocean all the way over to, say, South Africa, there's not much land in between. But if you also look at what we talked about before, that space graveyard, if we, and some people know in the mind's eye, since radio was what? Theater of the mind, of course. If you take a look at a map or just follow this, you're looking off the coast of Chile, and you're looking down toward Antarctica, then follow it all the way from New Zealand and kind of move together down in that region and all around Antarctica. So there are now five oceans. Well, that's exciting. We now live on a planet with five oceans. Very exciting. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Newark. Hello, Mark. Yes, thank you. What will happen if our planet stops rotating? Well, that would be an interesting phenomenon here. You better hang on to something. Yes, I would say so. Grab the next person or grab the next thing that's solid because it wouldn't, let's say this way, if it instantaneously stopped, it'd be this most incredible, incredible jolt. The description that I would give uh, would not be nice. But seriously, that's a good question. But if the Earth did stop rotating, we would wind up seeing that there would be one side, just like the moon, that goes through this incredible darkness, obviously, and then one side, this incredible light. And there could be other bad effects, too, because look at the tidal forces that would be changed because the moon is still the dominant tidal creator on the Earth. As we go around it, it changes, it turns, and we depend on that moon for the different rising and ebbing of the tides. So that would be a horrible example here, but uh, let's hope and pray that uh, the Earth's engine just keeps on ticking because I think we got a long way to go, and that's a positive way to think. Steve, let me ask you about this story that was uh, widely reported last week. Uh, The Earth, our planet, was apparently hit by a dead star blast so powerful that scientists don't understand it. It has to do with the Vela Pulsar that um, it hit Earth with a blast of energy so powerful that apparently scientists are at a loss to explain it. This is according to a new study in the journal Nature Astronomy. Are you up on this at all? I am, and I could talk about it. I mean, something's happened. There's two of these events that we'll talk about, but first to answer your concerns and everybody listening. We talk about this Vela supernova in the southern constellation of Vela the Sail, not something you'd see here in North America. You'd have to be, that is, the constellation in the southern hemisphere. But regardless, 
When this event took place, energies at the level of 20 tera electron volts. Now think about electron volts in a, in a kind of a way. I mean, this is not to get overly scientific. That like if you had voltage coming out. Remember, it's the amperage that's the problem, not just the voltage that bothers you if you're out around an electrical field. But this supernova sent out this amazing blast of energy out into space. Now, how does something like that happen? So a supernova like this, as a star ages, we find it expanding because it loses its ability to transform hydrogen into helium. The star then expands. And then, like many people, sad to say, if we have a cardiac arrhythmia or we are a heart attack kind of you know, symptom, that whole star literally collapses in a trillionth of a second. So this Vela supernova that they've identified, they know that it exists because the remnant, if you had a massive telescope, right, you would be able to see the Vela remnant of the supernova. It looks like this big bubble in space. But that energy that's blasted out of there has gotten past the Earth here. It didn't destroy the Earth because still it's far enough away that it's not something that we really have to be so concerned about. Now, the other one that I was talking about is a supernova in the year 1006 AD. It happened May 1st of 1006 AD. That was 7,200 light years away. And here in Arizona, we have these petroglyphs that, you know, the Native American, the, the Native American cultures, great cultures here. We see in the various mountains, right, even around Phoenix, you'll see these petroglyphs and you'll see these markings in the rocks. Well, it's alleged that that object, when it exploded, was many, many times brighter than Venus. And even the Native Americans, I think it was the Hohokam Nation here in the Valley of the Sun, the Salt River area. They have some markings on the rocks out here, out where we go observe the nighttime sky, of which they show this amazing, like, star-like looking object in the description there, very primitive, but it kind of makes sense that that object was observed. Now, put it in perspective. If the star Betelgeuse, which is 500 light years away, which is predicted someday to do supernova, even if it exploded, we're still not in that danger zone where even the gamma rays and radiation would bother us. But it changes if we had a star within, say, 30 light years or less, that would be problematic. But the good news is on the scale of stars that are within that distance, say upwards of 30 light years from us, we have nothing that we can look at right today, though astronomers don't know everything. But there's no star that we predict like that of Betelgeuse, you know, this massive red supergiant. So we're kind of lucky for that particular story. But the Vela supernova sent some tremendous amount of energy over the vastness of space. Lucky for us, it wasn't something that, you know, destroyed DNA on the planet. But theoretically, if we had something of that size, about as close as, say, 30 light years, not an exact number, there could be some deleterious effects. From I love it. All right. Well, I mean, I don't love that. I love the information. Yes. Uh, we're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment. If you have questions, we'll try and get to them. 800-848-9222. And if you have a pair of binoculars or a telescope, we'll tell you what you can expect to see in the coming days and weeks. This is the infinite side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sign in. 
Yesterday my life was filled with rain Sunny You smiled at me and really eased the pain Now the dark days are done and the bright days are here My sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true I love you You may not be able to use a standard pair of binoculars to look at the sun, but uh, when it's nighttime, there are a number of interesting things you can use a pair of binoculars to look at, and maybe even just the naked eye. Uh, My guest for the hour is Steve Cates. He has a really great sense of what's worth keeping an eye out for. Steve, what should folks look forward to seeing in the coming days and weeks? Well, Frank, here's where the fun begins. Since that eclipse took place, the moon, for all the listeners, as it starts to get brighter and higher into the sky, look for it in the evening sky just after sunset, high up in the southwestern sky. The moon moves on to its first quarter on the 22nd. And here's for planets. This is something really interesting. In the early morning sky, the object that you're seeing that's now about 45 degrees high up into the eastern sky before the sun, that big bright thing is Venus. But here's a challenge right now for all the listeners as we talk what we call the live sky. If your sky is clear and you're looking high up into the eastern sky, maybe like 45 degrees almost high up there, that bright white object is Jupiter. And what's interesting about that is if you take a look at the planet Jupiter right now, and I recommend if you have a pair of binoculars, try this, and a telescope for those people that have those. Right now, if you look at Jupiter, you're going to see a lot of banded detail on the planet. And this is with a small telescope. On the left side, the satellite Io and Ganymede are on the left side. You can see them. On the right side, Europa and Callisto are there. But what happens is they go back and forth all over the planet. They go behind it, the satellites. They have little shadows that move across, and you can actually see the great red spot on there. But remember, Frank, this is all happening as Jupiter is coming closest to us on November the 1st. It rises at sunset. We call it opposition on November 1st. It's in the sky each evening. It's really amazing. And this is something if you have children, grandchildren, whatever, just yourself going out to have some fun and take ourselves away from what's going on in the world, even momentarily, to have some tranquility. Who would not think that that's a beautiful thing to look at? Because when you look at the ball of Jupiter, it would take 12 Earths just to cross it. That's how big it is. It's like 88,000 miles across. But what's so fascinating is I was watching it the other night. You'll see the little red spot, which isn't little. It looks little on the planet. It's about two and a half times the diameter of the Earth. Imagine a storm like a hurricane, cyclone that big. Wouldn't that be amazing? Not for us here on the Earth. But it's an amazing sight to see. And you can go to a thing called Shallow Sky Jupiter, just shallowskyjupiter.com. And you can play along just like I'm doing right here. It shows you the position of the moons. It tells you when they're going to do shadows on the planet, when they're going, And you can do this, move it forward and backwards to look at it. Jupiter is the king of the planets. It's amazing. I love it. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Robert, you're on with Dr. Sky. Hi, Steve and Frank. Uh, Good morning. Dr. Dr. Malutin Milankovitch has hypothesized the effects of natural astronomical cycles and effects on Mm -hmm. Earth's climate change. The the four of them are eccentricity, obliquity, precession, mm-hmm. and absidial precession. Now, how much do you think that 
or know that they affect the Earth's climate. One of them is approximately a approximately 14,000-year cycle, which pretty much coincides mm-hmm. with the Ice Age. Absolutely. And remember, the area where WABC is, you know, thousands of years ago, was in the big glacial field in the Ice Age. But the interesting thing is, Robert, you bring up some good points. Precession, the obliquity. I mean, we could go into the details deeper, but just to make it quick. You look at these different precession cycles where the Earth, if you look at the axis, it spins around in its own little path through the sky because the Earth's now moving that little position in about a 24, 25,000 year cycle. Sure, I believe that has a lot to do with the changes on the Earth, temperature wise, climatologically, and things of that nature, and all those other smaller but equally important cycles in there. And what do we say, Robert? That the poles of the Earth are shifting dramatically. Remember, the geomagnetic pole is also different than the celestial pole. But we're seeing that the pole on the Earth, if you look on land, it's wandered over the course of what? The last couple of maybe 100 years as it's moving and migrating more towards Siberia. So, yeah, I think we really don't know enough to make conclusive, you know, definitive statements that we're just pumping too much carbon into the atmosphere. Hey, I don't like to pollute. Frank, you don't like to pollute. Robert, I'm sure you don't. But these cycles, we have to really understand deeper what's really going on before I think we make judgments on these things and call it total, you know, agreed science. What would you say? I would concur. Uh, Steve, before we run out of time, we have to talk about the moon. A lot of folks are interested in going Mm -hmm. there. India is interested in going there. The United States is interested in going there. When is someone going to make a manned mission to the moon, and who's going to be first? Well, it's a tough question to answer, but based on what may not happen with Artemis really quickly, that particular spacecraft is over budget. That's an issue of finance. The truth of the matter is, Russia, I don't think, is going to do it. I think China may very well be the first. But the answer of when we think people, humans, will go back to the moon, I don't think it'll happen any earlier than maybe 2028 or 2029. And I'm sure we can talk about the reasons in depth because, and who knows, maybe we'll get a surprise one from uh, Elon and SpaceX. Because look at how fast he's moved. Remember, the Psyche probe is on a Falcon Heavy rocket, not a NASA rocket, another of the amazing, powerful rockets brought about from drawing board to reality in one of the most amazing short periods of time, and it works. Well, that would be um, a nice thing if Artemis can get its act together. But um, given those of us mm-hmm. that have been waiting for another moon mission and it's already been 50 years, I'm not holding my breath. Jay is in Cincinnati. What's your question for Dr. Sky? Dr. Jay, Sky, how, how far can I see with Gramps' six-inch reflective scope that he was hand-built and made back in the 50s? Wow, six inch. Okay, well, if you have light polluted skies, the answer is going to be diminished by a lot. Take it out to an area where you live that has dark skies. We'll talk not technical, but this is the way it goes. The faintest star you can see with your naked eye is, they say, plus six on this magnitude scale. You should be able to pick up with a six inch telescope in dark skies easily to at least 11 or maybe plus 12 in magnitude, which is very, very faint considering it's a six inch. I have a six and an eight, and I can push it in dark skies here in Arizona visually to maybe plus 13. So to let everybody know, the higher the plus, the fainter the object. And to put it in perspective, 
the most massive telescopes here on the Earth, they're imaging objects, get a load of this, guys, with magnitudes maybe up to plus 34 or 35. But the whole thing is just incredible. So with a six-inch, get out into the dark skies if you're in city lights. Don't forget the planets come good in there. The sun and the moon with proper protection with the sun. And the planets will look beautiful. Jupiter would look great, Jay, in the six-inch at about maybe, ooh, I don't know, 200 power. And remember, in closing, 50 times the magnification per inch of your telescope is usually considered a limit. So if you take 6 times 50, I probably wouldn't push my telescope beyond a 300 magnification. But people do other things, too. But that's a long story. Steve, as is always the case, whenever we get together, we have run out of time, and I have pages worth of things that I could ask you about. What do you say we do this again in two weeks? Yes, Frank, and that'll be November 1st for you and here in Arizona, the night of Halloween, and we'll have some special surprises. Oh, I like that. I am a Halloween enthusiast. That sounds like a lot of fun. Hopefully I'll have uh, stolen a good portion of my son's candy, and we'll have an appropriate sweet uh, tooth satiated. All right, check out Dr. Sky at RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Just search the Dr. Sky experience. Keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.